Whiskey, whiskey, the singer's getting sore. We raise the roof now and we're lowering the floor. The band is blistering, but we got a little more. When I say one, two, you say three, four. One, two, three, four. Welcome to Whiskey Topic, hosted on Whiskey.Buzz. I'm Mark Bylock. We are brought to you by our Patreon supporters. If you want to support the podcast and get some exclusive content, uh, go to the show notes. On the, there's a link in the show notes, and you can check it out there. Uh, but also, you know, share the podcast on social media and rate it on iTunes. At all really helps. So we are here today with Josh Lindley, and Josh is a, a bartender for a four, over 14 years um, and the um, co-owner of Bart- Bartender Atlas, which is the worldwide directory of bartenders. And we're going to talk about cocktails and the relationship between cocktails and whiskey and whatever else you brought here, because I, I think this is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, thank you for having me, first of all. Uh, I know we've been working on this for a bit, but uh, someone has two children under the age of three currently, which uh, I can't imagine how much that limits your time. Uh, On the other side of things, uh, I've been spending that time traveling a bunch and tasting whiskey from all over the place. And that's what I'm here to talk about. I I, I wanted to go on that trip you did to to Mexico so badly. I I had it all planned out. I'm like, boom, boom. I'm just going to go in and I just like I can't I can't at this point I did a lot of travel this last this uh, so I'm glad I didn't go because I, my, my wife would have just been like really again <laughs> another one I know I mean she's so 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 wonderfully supportive and then just like but I mean I didn't, went away for two weeks in a row that's that's got that's tough yeah yeah well especially with little ones yeah you know yeah, yeah. no it's a whole other thing um so we're I, I love this um I, I don't think we I, there's like I feel like there's two crowds and, and I, I'm happy to, I'm so lucky to mingle between them both because um there's like whiskey geeks that are just like love the latest blah 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 batch level this that comes out and we're, we just really love talking about the industry from that perspective and then there's the entire cocktail culture that really swung everybody over to whiskey and allowed us to enjoy the drinks we're drinking. And whenever I, whenever, um, I do a lot of private tastings, uh, uh, people ask me like, you know, why, why is rye really big right now? I'm like, it's because of bartenders and cocktail culture. If it wasn't for the kind of rejuvenation of the kind of renaissance of what we interpret as traditional cocktails, we would have never had boozy rye cause nobody would have wanted to buy them. It's funny. And like, um, we haven't gotten too much into like, Let's just jump all over the place. Yeah. Um, so I have gone to Kentucky a couple times. Yeah. I was lucky enough to go to Camp Runamuck a few times, which mm-hmm. I believe you've had previous campers on your uh, podcast before. And if not, I mean, maybe don't have any more of them on. It gets <laughs> intense. Uh, but going around and visiting all these traditionally bourbon distilleries, when you visit places like Maker's Mark or, I mean, Wild Turkey and Woodford are the two that really stuck out, that yeah. they were bottling and really starting to push their rise when I was there in 2014, 2015. And Camp Ronamock, for anyone listening that doesn't know, is sort of a, um, loosely put, a professional development um, <laughs> uh, week away where bartenders from all over, pre- predominantly the U.S., a little bit of Canada, a little bit of the U.K., a little bit of Australia. I think they had someone from Singapore once or twice. Yeah. Um, so people come to Kentucky, hang out for a week, and you visit a bunch of distilleries, you meet a bunch of other bartenders, you spend a fair amount of time in a pool, um, and uh, you really test your limits as to how many mornings you can wake up at seven and taste whiskey all day, every day, for as many days in a row while surrounded by people. And then there's karaoke parties and everything. Anyway, Camp Runner Mark's <laughs> amazing. But getting back to talking about rye and pushing things towards bartenders, that was something that I found when I was going to Camp Runner Muck that a lot of traditional bourbon distillers were really starting to play with rye and the demand was there for it. And mm-hmm. I think... Um, you know, I think it's a really symbiotic relationship between whiskey geeks and, um, and cocktail geeks, uh, because you can't really have one without the other. 
Yeah. Um, the other thing too is like it's not just the whiskey geeks. There's rum nerds out there. There's gin nerds out there. There's tequila, mezcal, pisco nerds out there. Um, and I think it's really cool working with Bartender Atlas, what we do, and seeing different areas of the world. And sometimes it's totally topsy turvy. Yeah. Where you'll see so, like people in Australia that are just losing their minds about tequila and people in Mexico City that just can't believe how good bourbon is. And it's like, but you have all this other amazing stuff right in your backyard. Yeah. But I suppose, you know, if familiarity breeds contempt, right? And if yeah. it's something that you've just grown up with and know to always be there and that your granddad drank, then you're not really interested in it. it, it I mean, being a bartender sounds like it's it's the constant pursuit of uh, of perfection without knowing you'll never achieve that goal. Because like, Whatever that perfect cocktail I made today, in two years, it's going to be different, dated. Uh, other people have made that cocktail. Now you're no longer the originator of that cocktail. Well, now if everybody else is making this, I got to make something different. And, it, and now you're so you're constantly trying to take bring in different ingredients to make something something a little more interesting. And it's just like it's just maybe the Manhattan's the perfect drink or the old fashioned's a perfect drink. But now you're going to have to try to play with that concept the whole time. Yeah, something that I think about a lot and, and I get asked. Uh, a lot of times to specifically gin. Gin is sort of the spirit mm -hmm. that I, I maybe have done the most research and know the most history on. Yeah. Um, also, because it's one of the best documented. Right. I feel like I feel like anything else, you know, you're, you're more subject to conjecture and uh, different people's opinions. Whereas with gin, it's been pretty linear in how it's been documented forever. Anyhow, when I'm teaching these classes and we start talking about um, developing cocktails and what is a perfect cocktail and what's the best serve and what goes with what... Something that uh, I find that I, I will present to people and blows their minds is the idea that, yeah, a, that cocktail from 100 years ago, you know, whether it's the Savoy book or the Trader Vic book or, you know, Dave Embry book, all those drinks from 75, 100 years ago, lemons taste different then, you know, <laughs> right, grapefruits a... tasted different then. The sugar you were getting was different then. The whiskey you were getting was different then. And at this point, we're in such a prolific uh, point in development of spirits and cocktails that... Yeah, if I made a cocktail five years ago using this specific, you know, uh, PD Scotch whiskey yeah. that I used in this cocktail and this specific sherry and the specific bitters, in the last five years, there have been so many new, interesting, exciting whiskeys and sherries and bitters that have come out that if I make that drink again, following the exact same measurements from, you know, a distillery that's literally sometimes half a mile down the road from the previous distillery of this whiskey I was using before, you've got a radically different drink that is maybe better or maybe worse, but it'll be different. And that's what keeps driving. Like you were saying, it's, it's the, it's a, it's a fool's errand to try to think that you're going to make the best drink ever. And it will always be the best drink ever unless it's a bijou. Cause bijou cocktails are awesome. <laughs> what is a bijou cocktail? A bijou cocktail is a, uh, a gin chartreuse and sweet vermouth with some orange bitters. So, you know, start at a Manhattan and start or closer to a Tipperary, actually. I believe I've made myself that by accident one time. Yeah, there you go. There you w go. What's left on the shelf here? Yeah, we'll just do that. <laughs> we'll just do that. Yeah. I want a Manhattan. I'll put some gin in there and yeah, see yeah. how that works out. Um, but yeah, and a lot of the stuff we've been doing with Bartender Atlas, it's funny to see how whiskey is perceived in different places. Um, yeah. Uh, we were in Paris earlier this year, uh, mostly for a vacation. We were invited to a wedding in Marrakesh and there is no whiskey in Marrakesh. Uh Jeez. Not not none, but it's not really part of the culture to drink as you're eating there. Um, right. It's you know it's a predominantly Muslim country, and so you're drinking more tea than anything else. However, we were in Paris on the way there, and it's funny to go into bars and see what people are doing with different whiskeys yep. and which whiskeys uh, show up on menus more often. Right, like 
high rye whiskeys, not really a big deal in Paris yet. Right. Like you sort of see it around, but again, figuring out what that city is into and what the, the palette of that city calls for and what people are interested in. Um, there is the exception there is that there's a new Orleans themed bar there where they serve Sazeracs like crazy and they're using <laughs> super high rye whiskey there. Um, but yeah. And then, uh, I was in, like you were saying, we did a trip to Mexico, bartender right. Atlas, uh, with our friends at El Rey, which is a mezcal bar here, uh, in Toronto, we organized a trip that was four days long, which is the first time I've ever played tour guide. Right. I've been bartender. I've been broadcaster. I've been tour manager for punk rock bands forever ago. But, uh, First time I've ever been a proper tour guide. My Spanish is like decent. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not great, but it's enough that I know enough about distillation and I know enough about Spanish that I did fine when we were doing tours of all these palenques. But what was cool was in the city of Oaxaca, uh, one night I saw a bartender making king cubes. Mm-hmm. You know, not, not everyone has an Iceman necessarily, especially not in the city of Oaxaca, where they can just deliver the two-inch cubes to you at right. a phone call's notice. <laughs> uh, but I saw them putting, uh, it looked like hay into uh, a king cube uh tray right and i was like and i asked the bartender i was like what are you doing there and they're like oh it's corn fibers like the like the silk from the end of like when you shuck corn right and i was like oh and you're putting that in ice what do you do with that and we're like oh we make a oaxacan old-fashioned i'm like yeah i know a oaxacan old-fashioned they're like no 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 not not like the oaxacan old-fashioned we make a oaxacan old-fashioned using oaxacan whiskey and i was like <laughs> wait sorry oaxacan you make whiskey in Oaxaca. Right. Well, yeah, we have all this corn. It's like, well, of course. Yeah, right. sure. And he brought these bottles over. There's three of them. There's a white corn expression, a yellow corn expression, and a black corn expression. Right. They use some variation on those three whiskeys to make this old-fashioned. They're using a Mexican Amargo because Amargo is Spanish for bitter as opposed to Amaro, which is okay. Italian. It's similar, but like Amer in French. And anyway, so it's a Oaxacan made bitters, a Oaxacan made whiskey and a Oaxacan made ice cube that has, uh, oh. this corn fiber in it. So you're getting the, the aroma and the sweetness of actually being in a cornfield while you're drinking this corn whiskey drink in Oaxaca. Wow. Yeah. Uh, wow. it was the first really new, new, new whiskey I'd seen or tasted in a few years. I was so, I got really excited about it. And then of course that was at a bar called Selva, which mm-hmm. is attached to uh, Los Danzantes, which is a restaurant. They also make uh, mezcal. You can find Los Danzantes mezcal around, not often in Ontario as yeah. Ontario is Ontario, yeah. but you'll see Los Danzantes around. They have a couple restaurants in the, in the country of Mexico. Okay. And so Selva is the cocktail bar upstairs from Los Danzantes in Oaxaca City, where they have Oaxacan whiskey. I mentioned that to everybody else uh, on our tour group. I was just like, oh, yeah, I got to try this Oaxacan whiskey. And instantly you can see about half the people on the trip are bartenders. You could watch their eyes light up. I'm just like, <laughs> Oaxacan whiskey? Well, I know where I'm going for drinks tonight. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, and, yeah, just to think, like, yeah, we have an abundance of corn. Yeah. We're distilling mezcal why not? Right. Right. right? Cause they're pot distilling it and small. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of, that's the other thing with mezcal specifically. I know we, yeah, we're on the, we're on the whiskey podcast. Let's talk about mezcal for a bit. <laughs> no, this uh, is great. The, it's funny going to as many whiskey distilleries as I've gone to, which is a lot, you mm-hmm. know, in the States and Scotland and Ireland and Canada, um, going to see how mezcal is made is an entirely other thing. Right. Um, right. Mezcal is, really just like um it's a more like agricultural product than it is a distilled product i mean it is distilled obviously from a scientific standpoint but um the people making mezcal are farmers first 
Uh, right. They aren't chemists. They aren't. They don't have degrees in you know wood and and you know uh, maturation of grains and whatnot. It's just like no, the plant is ready when it's ready, and that's when we harvest it, and then we chop it up and we cook it and we distill it. Um, and it's a very uh, very linear. Like it's the least complicated, but also the most impressive and almost magical form of distilling I've ever seen. It, it is. It is kind of takes you back to like whiskey making a couple hundred years ago, right? Exactly. Where they had the farmer, yeah. they had fields. They this is it. They, that that's that's what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's that's pretty amazing. Um, yeah. Tell so tell us more. So like that that sounds great. So yeah, uh, that uh, witnessing that kind of thing versus you know um, which which is. You know, nothing is better or worse. It's just different. But it's also funny, like I was saying, you know, going to Kentucky or going to Windsor yeah. or going to uh, Ireland and seeing, you know, knowing that uh, the grain being dropped off in these giant trucks is being lab tested before any before it even gets close to any sort of moisture and they can start fermenting it. You know, and it's interesting to see the yeah. the difference between like, yeah, it's a plant. I've been keeping my eye on it for 17 years and I'm going to pull it out of the ground <laughs> except for like, no, there's this farmer who has been growing our barley that yeah. we buy five times a year, whatever it is. And we make sure that it's malted a certain way and we make sure that it's this old and we make sure that this is the, you know, the specific, uh, proprietary yeast strains. Yeah. Yeah. You know, protein levels, and, and protein levels, levels, all that yeah. stuff. And, and that's really like exciting and so deep and nerdy and scientific. Whereas, um, one of the palenques that we that bartender atlas brought this group of people down one of the palenques we went to there was guavas falling off of trees into the fermentation tank and the people making the mezcal like yeah yeah that happens <laughs> it's it's part of it now you know it's just uh that's how we do you know and and it's really cool to watch and see that something that's been done this way for literally hundreds of years yeah. it's just like no this is just how we do it yeah cool. You don't, you don't have a chemist on hand and you don't, I mean, you know, part of that figures into, they aren't, no one's making mezcal to export necessarily. Right. You know, right. there's very few, I should say, there's very few people making mezcal with the idea that this is how they're going to make a living. This is how they're going to, um, you know, really like make an impact on the world or create a brand or whatever. They're making mezcal because they make mezcal. Yeah. And I mean, so, you know, understand the difference between tequila and mezcal, um, I guess it's similar to saying what's the difference between, I guess, a regional drink, bourbon and whiskey. It's mezcal is a, a general category and, and tequila is uh, specific to, to the blue agave in specific regions of Mexico. Yeah. So, so if you're, you know, if you're not growing in the Bordeaux region of France, you know, I can't call it a Bordeaux. Same exactly. idea. Um, but that's where it gets a little, that's where it gets a little complicated because because the tequila regions have been so commercialized and there's just mm -hmm. a lot of great tequilas, just like there's a lot of great whiskeys mm -hmm. made in a more industrial fashion. Um, you have these non and tell me when I'm wrong. I'm yeah, yeah, kind of sharing my sure. knowledge as far as it goes. And you no, can tell I'm me with you. Wrong. And so the moment you, um, the moment you hit places like outside of that tequila region, so outside the Bordeaux region, you've got other types of agave um, that, that are grown there or maybe blue agave, but the, the point is not they're not from that region. So you typically have, like you said, the smaller farmers, more regional, more, more on the farm. Um, but then you do have companies that come in and, and try to like brand and group farmers together. It's like, you've been doing this family for, you know, on this land for 200 years. Let's put you in and bring you in kind of as, as part of some brand. Like mm -hmm. they do sort of, they have companies coming in and sort of brand some of the mezcals and some of the regions uh, in a, in, I guess not really kind of a, in a very interesting fashion. It's just like this, but then you can also potentially have big commercial enterprises come in and be like, Hey, we're going to, we're going to commercialize the crap out of mezcal. Now we're just going to, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you, so yeah. the name Mezcal isn't protected for high quality. It's just it happens to be really top quality stuff if you know what you're doing. But exactly. there's yeah. a there's a commercial enterprise. At least I've had a few examples of it at um, at, at some conferences where it's like, oh, this this is this is the Mezcal we hope never exists. This is like the high proof non you know no terroir, no regional, no, no yeah. provenance in that mezcal. Whereas you have true provenance, a farmer field da, 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 doing this for hundreds of years. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's the, it's honestly related back to whiskey too, where, mm-hmm. you know, just because some, some guy earned a bunch of money, he likes drinking whiskey and decides I'm opening a whiskey distillery and yeah. he dumps a bunch of money into it, whether he's distilling his own juice or not, you know, not important. He's putting his label on it. Yeah. And so, uh, the same thing does happen with mezcal. With mezcal though, uh, more often you've got, and, and luckily there are, there are people in and around Oaxaca and the state of Oaxaca that are, uh, negotiating on behalf of farmers mm-hmm. so that when giant brands want to come in or, or even just, you know, startup brands, yeah. uh, want, you know, some guy from San Francisco or whatever wants to start his own mezcal brand, some actor from he Los will, Angeles, some actor from Los Angeles, uh, <laughs> possibly on a successful, you know, AMC series decides they want to start a, a mezcal brand. Um, luckily there are people in and around Oaxaca that will work almost as, um, like liaisons between yeah. these people with all the money and the farmers that they want to buy their stuff from to mm-hmm. make sure that the farmers are looked after uh, and, and are getting paid fairly for what it is they're producing. The thing with Mezcal, too, though, is that supply chain is limited. Um, right. So much, uh, so much Mezcal is made from um, so much Mezcal is made from wild agave plants that it's difficult to predict how much you can actually make. And every batch that you make not every batch, but okay, like for the most part, when you make a batch, it's going to be a little different than the previous one. Not just in flavor, but in esters. How rainy was it the month that you distilled it? How rainy was it for the last six months that that agave was in the ground? There's so many other factors that figure mm-hmm. into it, which is something that, again, like we were talking about with whiskey, it's a whole lot easier to sort of um, standardize what it is you're working with. Yeah. Um, in mezcal, it's a lot more difficult to standardize that stuff, which isn't yeah. to say all mezcals can't standardize what they're doing. And especially once you get to the point where there are bigger brands who can farm, um, Espadine agave for however long, uh, and have that, there are businesses that obviously have that figured out, but for the most part, the mezcal that you're drinking in Mexico is made by some guy who also has a chicken coop and, um, you know, a a cornfield and it's just, uh, making mezcal is something extra with that. Well, going back to the topic of mezcal and the whiskey topic. Um, yes, of course. Um, we're on the mezcal topic are, podcast today with no. Mark Bylock and Josh Lindley. The, the name, the, the whiskey and the whiskey topic is, is a loose interpretation. Yep. Um, <laughs> the, um, so tell us about the goat's head, the chicken carcasses, the... Um, are we talking about pachuga? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. So uh, this was really cool. On this trip that we organized, um, mm-hmm. we got to... Which again, I really... Regret not going to. We're going. We're going to do another one. Awesome. Uh, awesome. Anyone listening, keep an eye on bartenderatlas.com. Follow us on all the social media channels. All of that. Don't worry. When we start planning this again, we'll make sure everybody knows. It was so reasonably priced too. I, I can't remember how much it was, but I'm just like, oh my god. This yeah, just, it, it's yeah. pretty cool. And like, if you you get yourself to Oaxaca, and we'll yeah. sort of lead you around from there. That kind of thing. Yeah. Anyhow, um, don't quote me on that. We'll again, again, <laughs> details wait, wait. De- details will be on the website in the future. Yeah, but. Um, Sorry, now what were we talking about? I started oh, uh, talking about goat this. heads and chicken carcasses. Uh, goat heads, yes, yes. goat heads. So, um, two, uh, so a pachuga mm-hmm. is a specific type of mezcal, traditionally made for uh, Christmases, birthdays, funerals, um, every weddings too. 
Weddings, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Every sort of uh, every kind of village or area in Mexico will have their own patron state, you know, mm-hmm. of a specific town or a village or, or even the whole state. Um, we'll have a patron saint. And on the, on the day that we celebrate that saint, a lot of times a pachuga would be made as well. And okay. so the idea, mezcal is generally, I mean, there are mezcals that are distilled once through. Uh, generally, mezcal is distilled twice. It is pretty rough spirit. They are rough um, uh, materials that you're working with first. So mm-hmm. distilling it twice is standard practice. Um, okay. There are people that go the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only, not the only time, but usually the only time there's a third distillation is when you're making a pachuga. And so what will happen is they'll take um, a mezcal that's been distilled twice already, mm-hmm. uh, usually espadine because it's the most plentiful and the easiest to grow agave mm-hmm. um, that mezcal is made with usually. And uh, it, they'll crush it all up and they'll distill it once, distill it twice. And then the third distillation, they'll put it back into this clay pot still. And over top of the hole on the top of the clay pot still, they'll sort of put a it's, I mean, it's fashioned from whatever they can make it out of. Sometimes it's another piece of clay. Sometimes it's a piece of like a pot with the top chopped out of it or the bottom chopped out of it. And they'll hang, um, a chicken on a piece of wire or a piece of string in that. So as the third distillation is happening, they'll throw a bunch of extra fruit, mm-hmm. uh, also like local, anything local, right. To really celebrate the, the, like we were saying, like terroir, not exactly terroir, but yeah, yeah. like the, the essence of that Providence. region. Right. Yeah. So, so, I you guess know, not Providence, but yeah, it is, yeah, yeah that's because historical. Uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so whatever is, yeah. is growing in that region, like I mentioned before, the guava that was falling into the, yeah. into the, into the tank. So there'll be guavas, there'll be peaches, there'll be bananas, there'll be corn, there'll be all kinds of different things thrown into this third distillation. And then it kind of floats up through usually a chicken, sometimes a turkey, sometimes a rabbit. Um, someone made one using a, a, a leg of jamon. A while ago, oh, uh, yeah. So like, there's I made a couple up the different goat things. Part, clearly, yeah. There's well, no, but goat, goat, goats, sure, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there's a whole bunch of different things that that uh, different regions will do to make yeah. a pachuga, and this is a very special bottling, right? Like, they, it's the sort of thing where there would only be who knows twenty to a hundred liters of it yeah. that you would make from this batch, and you sort of drink it all on that day, right? Uh, generally, you know, right. or you save it as that specific celebrations mezcal, like that's mm-hmm. what it's for. Um, but yeah, Pachuga is really cool. It's funny too, because um, you know, my wife Jess, who I run Bartender Atlas with, she hasn't eaten meat in forever. But when you're going and and taking part in this sort of, you know, uh cultural celebration, you, you don't want to be the person who's like, Well, I just I'm I'm not gonna drink this mezcal. I mean, there's chicken in it. There isn't really any chicken in it. Actually, on that trip, one of the guys on the trip was like, Can we eat the chicken afterwards? No. That's that's a smart, so, smart guy right there. So here's the thing. Mm-hmm. All the distillers we talked to were like, yeah, you can, but it's steamed chicken. Like, gross. Eat the fruit, though. The fruit that's oh, been yeah. redistilled with it, it's this nice, like, cooked through, almost jammy, plummy, like, deliciousness. Yeah. Anyway, so, yeah, that's uh, that's a little story about Pachuga and Mezcal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, is, it is a fascinating. It, it's one of those things that um, if it... If it ever grows, it can never, at, at this state, it can never grow to a giant enterprise. So it's kind of kept at this manageable level. And mm-hmm. and I, I would almost argue it's it's almost, um, you know, we, we talked about kind of the regional, um, in, in Mexico, how the, there's that regional aspect where like farmers, that farmers are getting fair fair price for what they're producing. But within communities like, like in Toronto or bartending communities, it's really the bartenders that seem to kind of gauge mezcal because i mean i whenever it's, it's always been bartenders that told me about have this mezcal try this try this sure. it's never been like i'm going to go to my local liquor store and buy it I, I just don't know i would never you know what i mean i wouldn't know what to buy per se and yeah. because what we get here with i guess with the exception of a 
couple of brands. What we get here is usually comes and goes pretty quickly. Well, yeah, that's the truth of it is that there isn't a whole lot of mezcal that comes into Ontario anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, a, and like, it, it's also funny trying to gauge when you only have access to four or five right. of a yes. thing, Yeah, you know, trying to gauge what's the higher quality or what's more reasonably made or what farmers are getting paid best or which is made with the most integrity, all that kind of thing. It's difficult. And I mean, you and I have been booze nerds for long enough in this province and like watching the way that the LCBO has grown, what you can and can't get on that shelf on those shelves is amazing as, as rough as it still is, as much yeah. as anyone wants to still complain about it. Yeah. Um, honestly, the leaps and bounds the LCBO has made in the last decade is astounding. Yeah. And I yeah. think about that a lot when, you know, when we're working with 25 year old bartenders, like, ah, oh, can you believe that this is the only creme de violette we can get here? And I'm like, yo, 10 years ago, I had to make my own violette. Like I had to figure out how to do, I had to figure out how to make maraschino liqueur. I was, right. I was making, I was making high sop liqueur cause we couldn't get chartreuse. Right. Um, and so it's, it's kind of funny, but anyway, so the fact that we can only get four or five mezcals at the best of times in Ontario does make it difficult for consumers to figure out what's actually high quality and what's worthwhile. Um, I don't want to ever be like a commercial, but I will say that anytime you see a bottle that says Siete Mysterios on yes. it, especially in Ontario, that is definitely worth buying. Um, they have many, many expressions. I think they make yeah. seven or eight and they probably do seasonal stuff. And the, and the guys that run that are very much, they're living in Mexico city, but they're very close with the people in Oaxaca that are making their yeah. mezcal. They're very careful about who they work with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they take very good care of the families that they work with as well. So yeah, I stand fully behind Siete Mysterios. For yeah. Sure. I'll, uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, so, I mean, that, that's the one, pretty much I think the ones that I've had and everything I've had there has been, yeah. Yeah. They're perfect. very good. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah. And then, I mean, it works the same way. Like we were, like we were saying before, you know, there are people who there are contract distillers who will slap their label on something and say Mm -hmm. it's their whiskey when it's not actually their whiskey. And that isn't to say that it's bad whiskey. Yeah. Um, obviously, I mean, you drink more of it than almost anybody I know. Um, (laughs) oh boy, that says a lot. lot Well, it's part of your job though. I mean, I mean by more, I mean more expressions, not necessarily more in quantity. Uh, more in quality though i would say yeah, yeah. i no, i i get it because i mean like you're especially in the bartender but i mean it's it's really funny because that that, that cross between kind of uh like a booze nerd and, and bartending is so great because you do you do have wonderful um you do get such wonderful expressions that i that not maybe with everything like you know like chartreuse as you mentioned but like just all this other weird stuff that you get there's always an interesting conversation with the bartender to have um about the kind of booze that they're currently interested in i think my my favorite place to go to is like uh what you know what are you making today what's mm-hmm. what and it's usually like a liqueur or like a flavor like something that i don't even know i you've pronounced a few things so far i'm like i don't even know what that is <laughs> i don't know what I, that is I, 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 Sure, give it to me. Whatever. That's Just great. That's what I'm here for. It. Right? Yeah. Um, and so you brought you brought some ingredients here. I did. Um, this is the longest podcast we've had without a drink. Can you uh, believe it? I I don't. I I can't. I almost we're, can't. We're falling apart here. <laughs> we're falling apart. I'm falling apart. No. Um. So you're. What are you going to do here? Uh. With, All right. With so what you brought? Uh, besides running bartenderatlas.com, mm-hmm. uh, I also still work a few nights a week making drinks. Uh, at a restaurant called Chanticleer in Parkdale. I've been there about three years now. Uh, the restaurant itself has been there seven and a half. Rated a number one restaurant again by num- somebody Number in one Toronto. French restaurant on a website in Toronto <laughs> that I am very thankful that they did that, I'm sure, very scientific research to find out that we are the best. Which, which website was it? 
Oh. Okay. <laughs> I don't. I can't remember. I know I saw it, and I'm very thankful that we are on list. It's very nice. List yeah. are one of those things that I'm happy to call bullshit on until yeah. I'm on them. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And then, and then I'm very thankful that people are paying attention to the work that uh, that I'm putting into. Uh, whether it's creating cocktails or managing a restaurant or the work that like chefs are doing to create something interesting so that uh, people dining out in Toronto have a reason to leave their house and not just sit and watch Netflix even when it's minus seven and it's only the middle of November. Um, Chanticleer is the restaurant I <laughs> regret not going to the most. I go I go there as often as I can. You are literally on the other side of town for me. Yes. Um, and, and so it's always, it's always there's just never a quick trip to Chanticleer. No. Uh, from, from here, especially during early dinner time. Um, but a wonderful restaurant and always wonderful to see behind a bar. Um, another fun place where there's always an interesting wine and some liqueur or something and Definitely. a lot of excitement behind it. Yeah. The work that goes into our wine list is the thing that I'm most impressed about yeah. there being like my spirits. If anyone, uh, the very visual part of the podcast, the spirits, my <laughs> right hand is way up over my head right yeah. now. And my beer knowledge is around my eyes uh-huh. and my wine level is somewhere around my knees. Right. As right. far as my knowledge goes of, of, uh, things that we imbibe. Um, and so I get really impressed when I taste wines that don't taste like anything I've ever had before. Ooh, I like that. I, I, I'm trying to think of body parts where my wine and beer knowledge is. It's, it'd probably be somewhere around the, um, the toe, yeah. top of the toe. Right? Yeah. I'm very focused in, in on the, the whiskey. In the nail and knuckle region <laughs> of the, the toe. Region, yeah. I, uh, okay, I, so I, I always tell people I'm, I have very complex tastes with whiskeys, but when it comes to beers and wines, I'm just like, I don't know, give me a dry Merlot and uh, you know, a not-so-IPA-ish IPA. I'll be great. Yeah. A, a boozy IPA is my usual answer though it's even though boozy ipas has gotten too boozy and too ipas it's like it's like my standard go-to just got like the high the proof of the beer went so much higher and the the hops went so much higher like that used to be a good go-to now i'm just like i don't know give me an ipa i I don't know what to order anymore question mark yeah Yeah. i know i feel like a again so so, okay so this drink we're working on for uh we are in the middle of of doing a menu flip at chanticleer so uh by the time season by the time anybody hears this uh, this may or may not be on the list, depending on how the rest of the staff and some of our guests feel about it. Um, I'm going to make a drink using the Smoky Grouse. It's the whiskey podcast, you know, and it's the whiskey topic. I, I should be it. using whiskey. So this is Famous Grouse Smoky Black. Um, I'm not sure about how the branding worked on this. I remember a Black Grouse that was a yep. blended whiskey mm-hmm. with some smoked peat whiskey in it as well. I feel like this is the same thing, maybe just a rebrand. Maybe someone from uh, Beam Sum Tori can reach out to us and let us know exactly what we've got. Yeah, all I, I, know I don't is, actually know. All I know is I got this bottle the other day, and it is goddamn delicious. Um, so I'm going to pour it like... Probably two parts of this whiskey. Also, I am free pouring today, which is something I don't usually advocate for, especially without pour spouts, but we'll see how this is going to go. So a bunch of the smoky grouse. I've got Amaro Lucano here. We were lucky enough, Bartender Atlas got invited to go to Italy and taste, go to a bunch of different Italian spirits uh, distilleries. We did a couple different Amaro, uh, a bunch of anisette. Um, Yeah, it was great. Um, It was an amazing trip. The Italian Trade Commission set that up. We visited Strega, Amaro Lucano, Polini, Amaro Varnelli, and Amaro Maletti. Um, We visited all those distilleries. It was awesome. Um, So a little bit of Amaro, a little bit of smoky whiskey, just the littlest splash of chartreuse. So what is chartreuse? Chartreuse. <laughs> Bar- every bartender's favorite. Every bartender's truce. favorite. Uh, every, <laughs> it's, it's, I'm preaching the truce. Truce <laughs> or dare. Um, chartreuse, the, it's a very long and very complicated story. The short version is it's a herbal liqueur made by monks in the Cartesian Mountains. 
There is anywhere from 60 to 120 uh, ingredients in it, depending on who you talk to and what time of year it is and how much they've had to drink already. Um, very high sugar content, very high alcohol content, but it all balances so well and it works as an accent. There's so many things in it that no matter what you're making, if you put chartreuse in it, it will accent certain things. Nice. You want to make sure it doesn't take anything over, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's uh yeah, it's everybody's favorite. You can drink it straight. You can drink any cocktails. You can drink it anytime. Um, awesome. Anyway, so I'm 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 putting uh, herbal chartreuse with the herbal amaro lucano, and then something smoky and whiskey. And then you commented earlier that I stopped at Tim Hortons uh -huh. on my way here. Uh, I haven't had a sip out of this yet because I'm putting coffee in this drink too. Oh, very nice. Uh, so coffee Timmy's and black. coffee Oof. and whiskey and some black Tim Hortons coffee today. Uh, I, by no means, like I'm saying, I'm just workshopping this. I'll probably be using a cold brew to make this in <laughs> real life. But uh, for now, let's see how this goes. Yeah, it smells about right. This is the exciting part for the listeners where Whoa. you listen to us sniff on things and gurgle. I mean, the Timmy's is coming through, but just a tiny bit. Mm. Um, I, I think actually, I think all, every one of our American listeners probably knows about Tim Hortons now. It's been, Everybody uh, knows yeah, about Tim Hortons. It, it, it made all the, Wendy's bought them and it made more money than Wendy's, I think, or something like that. I can't yeah. the story, but um, yeah. I don't have a name for this yet, but I'm not mad at it. Well, without the cold brew of uh, regional uh, coffee beans, I don't know if this is going to quite have the uh, aroma of the earth we would expect, but... Remember, remember when we were talking about the... Uh you know, the quality of uh, different ingredients that you want to use for things and how you can always make a drink better based on what's newer or what better ingredients you have. Yeah. It won't necessarily be Tim Hortons in the final version. Although, who knows, in two weeks, if I make this drink a few times and the Tim Hortons is the one that shows up best, maybe that's what I do. Uh, maybe that is. It's that's okay. It's a huh? nice kind of flat profile, but it kind of, it's like it's coffee. It's not, you don't get a lot of acidity on it. No. Um, so that's nice. Yeah, and, and the think, kind of the coffeeness of the the bit of smokiness, it's uh, huh. Maybe it'll be Timmy's. Maybe it'll be, maybe we'll have one of those like you know what that could be a whole thing. You'll you'll buy the the big thing of Timmy's, the car, oh, like cardboard the, the box. jug with yeah. the the little like plunger finger thing on the side of it. Yeah. Exactly. Then you'll you'll make the drink and you'll just pour some of that. And people will be like, it's probably not really Timmy's, and he's probably like, you know, <laughs> no, it definitely. Josh, Josh <laughs> probably made his own coffee, and stomped his own coffee beans, mixed it with chicory it. and everything. <laughs> like no, no, this is so this is uh, this is something. This is a way that I have been uh, mapping out drinks for my entire career. Since Let's be honest. The first three years I was bartending, I was just uh, up to my eyeballs in bourbon and Jägermeister. Um, sure. And then, and then around 2008, 2009, I really started paying more attention to how things are made and coming up with cocktails and reading books, reading blogs. You know, mm -hmm. Jeff Morgenthaler at the time, his blog was amazing, and like, you know, Gary Regan. And then I started buying all the weird old books and you know, listening to podcasts. Yeah. Go figure. I know, right? Um, yeah. So, but this is this is often how I will start mapping out a drink. Is just like have an idea, sort of rough pours of the four or five, six ingredients into a glass, yeah, just to see how they work together. What do I need more of? What do I need less of? And kind of work at it from there. This. So, what do you think of this? What's, I feel what's like your... th this needs work, yeah. but everything is showing up in the proportions I poured it already. Yes, which is the key because a lot of times it'll just be like, "Yep, the only thing I can taste is mint." You know, <laughs> right? right. Um, in this case, I feel like everything showed up. So, you know, I've got groundwork now. Um, maybe uh, by the time the podcast comes out, or by the time you're hearing it, by all means, just message me on uh, whatever form of social media you find reasonable, and I'll give you the actual recipe by then. Nice. Hopefully, I'll have it figured out. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Um, the um, uh, let, let's talk about, a little bit about um, the Toronto cocktail. 
Toronto Cocktail, the Toronto Cocktail, or the, the Toronto Cocktail the, Conference? The Toronto Cocktail. Yes. Um, so, can you give me a ra- history? Toronto Cocktail. Okay. Because um, it seems like, like a very um, so. Okay. Go, yeah, go. like any other cocktail, uh, mm-hmm. there are at least seven stories about where it comes from mm-hmm. uh, and how it is supposed to be made and what measures you're supposed to use. And this goes back to what I was saying, where you're reading a cocktail book from 1930 that says this drink is made this way because you know you're using Canadian or rye whiskey, but yeah. uh, you know it might not have been 100% rye whiskey at the time. It might have been a you know what was the how do you pronounce the town in Pennsylvania? Mahon Monongahela. I don't know the town yeah. in Pennsylvania that made rye a hundred years oh, ago. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, yeah. Monongahela yeah. rye, and then and then they all moved south. And anyway, yeah. Uh, but yeah, so it might not have been. You know, when it says rye whiskey, it might not have been rye whiskey. It might have just been whatever Canadian whiskey was around at the right. time, like whatever Canadian club was doing a hundred years ago, or right? Which is whatever Canadian it was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like Fernet Branca is distilled uh, in I don't know six different plants. I think they have around the yeah. world, and some of them are in Argentina, some of them are in Mexico, some of them are in Italy, some of them are in who knows, right? So. So when you're reading something that says rye whiskey, Fernet Branca, bitters, sugar, yeah. and like who knows if sugar is even in the original recipe for it, right. who knows what sugar, who knows what whiskey, who knows what Fernet, who knows what bitters. Right. Um, I think the Savoy cocktail book is the one that people reference the Toronto cocktail from most often, mm-hmm. where it's two ounces of whiskey, a half, maybe a quarter ounce of Fernet, and then a couple dashes of whiskey, or a tup, excuse me, a couple dashes of bitters. Uh, a lot of people will add a little bit of simple syrup to that, because, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that is a pretty aggressive drink when you're just drinking rye whiskey and Fernet Branca in a glass. Fernet Branca, one of those things, like Campari, that uh, the first time you drink it, you hate it, and the fifth time you drink it, you can't believe you ever lived without it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good I feel like, of it. I feel yeah. like that's how Fernet Branca sits, and then also has become very much like a bartender or handshake. Yeah, yeah. You know? Oh, you're in the industry? You want a Fernet? It's like, yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, sure, more Fernet tonight. Great. Um, I love the Toronto cocktail. It didn't originate in Toronto. Like, it wasn't originally made yeah. here. Um, I'm pretty sure it comes from the UK, but again, uh, if it was the UK during prohibition, it could have been an American that created it. And I'm sure there is someone listening right now that's like, no, it was made by this person at this time in this bar. <laughs> uh, and that, and if that's what you're hearing right now, you're probably right. Um, yeah. I have gotten to a point in all of my storytelling that I am not so concerned with something that happened a hundred years ago. If the only thing about it is a drink yeah. and who made it, I, uh, uh, there are more important things to remember. There are more important things going on. There are more important things to argue about. Uh, all I know is that the Toronto cocktail is delicious, and I will drink one anytime someone puts it in front of me. And, and you make my favorite Toronto cocktail. As oh, declared. thank that, you. That's a that's, wonderful example. Yeah, that's yeah. uh, that's one of Jacob's favorite as well. Jacob yeah. being the owner of Chanticleer, he's been there the whole time, the whole seven and a half years. Yeah. Um, he's aged probably 20 in those seven and a half years. Um, <laughs> not physically, just mentally. Oh, uh, I love Jacob. Yeah. yeah, he's, he's great. I love that guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah. yeah, so he, from day one, I think he has had the Toronto cocktail on the menu. In the last year, we haven't even bothered having it on the menu. We have enough regulars, luckily, that come by and just say, oh, yeah, you can still make a Toronto. It's like, I will make you a Toronto anytime. <laughs> doesn't I even need that. to be on the list. I love that. Yeah. I don't know. What would you call this drink? This uh, coffee, whiskey, Amaro drink? Um, if you had to come up with a cocktail name. That's not really your... I know that's not know really your thing. thing. I'm, I'm putting I'm, you on I'm the thinking, spot right now. I'm thinking uh, I'm going to call it the... Uh, I, I would call it, I would have the Horton in it. 
Oh. Uh, and maybe like, like the Horton Four sounds terrible. Uh, What's uh? Oh, but the first Tim Hortons was in Hamilton, right? There's definitely a Hamilton yeah, joke sure, in here. Sure, sure, sure. Oh, smoking, smokes and coffee. Tom Waits, Hamilton. Oh, oh. See now you you've done this before. That's that's amazing. Tom Waits at the Corktown Tavern. That's what this tastes like to me. Okay, that was magic. Uh, was it? <laughs> I think so. I think so. I was thinking like the Horton Four. I don't know. Coffee then, and cigarettes. I was trying to make, trying to make a fun yeah. pun on our chartreuse, but. Uh, but but you've already taken it to Hamilton to, 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 all the way yeah, through. Yeah. I also, you know, you don't want to get in this brain. It's terrible. <laughs> it's, it's it's messy in here. <laughs> that was very impressive how quickly you did that. Yeah. Yep. Something something about that. Tom waits at the Corktown. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. You also do. So you also do the um, Toronto Cocktail Conference. Conference. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Which um, is. I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's it's pretty incredible that that we have that in in Toronto, um, very kind of high level cocktail conference. It is intentionally very like all the topics are very relevant. Mm. Um, you don't have you know thirty different sessions on on tequila, but you have all the kind of pertinent uh, topics uh, on things. So that's a little bit how that came about. Yeah. So uh, bartender Atlas, Jess and I, my wife, and. Um, I worked at the Drake Hotel 10 years ago now, which mm-hmm. is crazy that it was 10 years ago I left there. Um, we, The short version is uh, the same people who run Camp Runamuck did mm-hmm. uh, several bar institute um, was a program they were running for a while. They also run Portland Cocktail Week. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to do smaller versions of Portland Cocktail Week in several different cities. They ran into some troubles getting into Canada and organizing the event here. And so at the last minute, we, Jess and I, took it over oh, wow. okay. and ran it at the Drake Hotel. This is in 2017. Right. So we thought uh, they, had, they had done a lot of the planning for it, and we sort of took it over and ran it. And so what we thought between, and it happened at the Drake Hotel, so we discussed with John and Gord, who are, forgive me if I get the titles wrong, but I swear it's beverage director and head bartender for Drake Hotel Properties. Mm-hmm. Um, we worked with the two of them, thought, well, if we can execute this with, you know, a week and a half notice yeah, uh, yeah. and do three days of things and someone else's plan that they just kind of sent to us, how, like, how much of a thing could we make it if it was the four of us planning it all along right. and go all the way through where we have the local connections, we don't need to worry about... Um, you know, the same set of, of uh, legalities bringing Americans over and whatnot. Right. Luckily, doing this at the Drake Hotel, um, because it's a live music venue, there are so many musicians that come from all over the world to play at the Drake Hotel anyway. So there's almost, there's already an infrastructure there for international right. uh, performers yeah. to come to the Drake Hotel, which makes it much easier for us when we want Americans or Brits or Australians to come and talk at yeah. Toronto cocktail conference nice so anyway so 2008 so shortly after 2017 it was like october 2017 we started talking about how are we going to do toronto cocktail conference 2018 right i started planning it a full 10 months out actually as soon as we're done this podcast i'm heading to the drake to go do a meeting for talk 2020 nice nice yeah um it's been it's been really cool to see um I mean, you've gone to Tales of the Cocktail a handful mm-hmm. of times, I'm sure. Yeah. Have yep. you ever done... Did you do the Manhattan Cocktail Classic when that was happening at all? No, I did not. No. No. But I mean, you go to enough whiskey shows, and mm-hmm. sometimes it's a trade show where yep. 120 brands have a booth set up, and you go and you say hi, you taste their thing, you take notes, you take a business card, reach out to someone, work with them later. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Tales of the Cocktails uh, format is that is one that there is seminars going all the time. Some of them are straight up, like you were saying... Cane spirit seminar. There's yes. nine different cane spirits in front of you. We're going to tell you about all of them. Other ones are about 
you know, how to build an HR policy at your 60 seat bar. The other one is like, you're running a hotel bar with 27 yeah. staff. How do you train everyone? So they're at the same level. And so we're sort of taking a bit of that, uh, that sort of format yeah. with what we do with Toronto cocktail okay. conference. That's a good, yeah. So what we've done the last two years, and again, we're just planning next year. We might be shifting some stuff around again. Don't like none of this is carved in stone, but what we've yeah. done for the last two years is that we have three seminars running consistently or consistently at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so, uh, and everything we try to make sure that the speakers are varied in not only who they are, but what they're talking about and where they're from yep. and levels of experience. You know, we mm-hmm. have people talking about waste reduction in bars. Mm-hmm. We have people talking about, um, the history of, of spicy flavors in cocktails. Right. We also have people talking about stretches and exercises you can do before and after your bar shift so that your shoulders don't hurt so much and so that your knees don't hurt so much. But then on the other side of it, we want to make sure that we have a history of Amaro, a history of vermouth. This is how, um, you know, this is how Canadian whiskey came to dictate laws in this country. You know, right. we have, we have a bunch of different things. We try to keep it as spread out as possible. Um, focusing on, we came up with it. It was cute in our brains. We've never actually published it, but it punches the idea. So it's like uh, practical understanding, uh, new and innovative ideas. I can't remember what the C was. And then the H is history. Right. So we try to we try to hit all those bases when we're planning out what the seminars are going to be. Nice. And obviously there's things that sort of cross over to there's things where like training your bar staff also figures into speed bartending, which also figures into, you know, what brands you're using. Right, um, right. There's a there's a bunch of different uh, different angles that we work with Toronto Cocktail Conference. So next year, the 2020 is happening August 10th, 11th, and 12th uh, at predominantly at the Drake Hotel. Mm-hmm. But uh, we do encourage people to go out and visit. Our programming usually ends around seven seven o'clock at night. So yeah. the idea is that people can go and explore Toronto as well and go see all. There's so many awesome bars in Toronto now. Yeah, um, yeah. And everyone's really excited. It's gotten to the point where it's not just the bartenders going out to the really awesome bars anymore either. <laughs> It's not just the whiskey nerds going out because, you know, you can get a Toronto cocktail at Chanticleer, but it's the general public now in Toronto has finally caught up. Um, I would never make fun of anyone for drinking a vodka soda because let's be honest, it's been a long day. I don't necessarily need to taste anything but lemon. Give me a vodka soda lemon. I'll crush it. And then I'll get into an actual drink afterwards. You know, it's the same thing as drinking a super pale lager. Right, you know, right. It's just, or like a sh- a shot of Irish. You know, it's just like, yep, it's quick, it's easy. I'm gonna but do that there, now. I can't make the decision. Just and then, yeah, yeah give, give me that simple. now, and then I'll sit down and actually do that. But there's yeah. so many people in Toronto now that two years ago had never had a cocktail, thought they were all too sweet, yeah, couldn't have possibly been interested. And now I have people asking me what piscos I have on my back bar. Yeah, that, that's pretty incredible. And you're you're I love, that was a fun statement you said though. The, very you know every when i um before i kids especially i would go to so many bars in toronto and and that's how i uh knew everybody in this community is because we all went to the same bars there was never any plans oh we're gonna meet up at this bar at nine o'clock half the times i'd show up at bars on my own and i there'd be a crowd of people that i'm like oh i you know we know everybody here um that has changed a little bit some of those bars had to move out a little further out some of the mm-hmm. regions like spread out a little bit more um uh, but but it has changed i go to these bars now and i'm like oh crap i don't know anybody in here yeah. it's like Holy everything. I mean, the bartenders I typically do know, but like, I'm just, wow, things have changed. It yeah. really has. Um, it's great. Yeah. I, I love it. I feel like that's, that's the, I mean, that's the turning point with, with any sort of city or any sort of cocktail scene is like, uh, Sandy Delmeda, who I have learned so much from in, mm-hmm. in this city. Um, she forever has been espousing the idea of having modern classics and the yeah. idea that you can go, she made a drink forever ago called the full metal jacket. 
she names most of her films after, or most of her cocktails after films. Yeah. Um, but she made a drink called a full metal jacket forever ago. And I've, it's, it didn't take off, you know, the way that something like a paper plane did, Mm -hmm. but, um, the full metal jacket was a a whiskey drink with Amaro. And I think there was a a cedar component. Mm -hmm. I can't really remember the drink at this point, but I know that I've seen it from three or four different people around the city at this point who were like, right. Oh yeah, I'll make you a full metal jacket. And it's definitely not the full metal jacket Sandy made in 2011 or whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. But just the idea that, that people around the city are starting to become familiar with classic cocktails or with specific whiskey brands or with specific, uh, beers even, yeah. you know, where, whereas, you know, five years ago, that was not the case. Um, I also, um, I, I love, um, uh, the, one of the things I love about a lot of things I love about Toronto bartender community, but one of the things I really enjoy is that, uh, kind of the push for health and, and to be healthy. I think, mm. uh, um, it's really easy to kind of, it's really easy to kind of post your drinking all night and all night and all night, but it's also important to post what you're doing the next day to survive the, the, the evenings. And you, you do a lot of that on your Instagram feed and I think, uh, and a lot of bartenders do. And I think it's a you know important part of this to say, Hey, like, you know, be healthier, do, do whatever you want to do. Definitely. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little cheesy, but, uh, I mean, bartenders, we spend so much time, even, you know, distillers mm-hmm. spend so much time trying to figure out a uh, balance in their spirits and balancing their cocktails. So that like we were saying with this, uh, coffee drink that I just imagined, you know, everything's showing up. I wouldn't say this is perfectly balanced, yeah. but yeah. if I work on it and refine it, I would want to have a drink that's more balanced. Uh, you got to do that with your life too. You yeah. can't just eat, you know, the wackiest burger you've ever seen and follow it up with nine shots and hope that you'll feel good about it the next day. Um, that's it. I think Go the ahead. average person can. It's just if you're yeah. we're exposed to it every, every day, single yeah. day. It's so, a different story. So that's yeah. the thing is I, for a while, I was running a lot. Yeah. Uh, I ran a marathon last year. Ah, congrats, yeah. <sighs> I hate running. I will never, I, oh I can't God. stand it. I don't know how people run. I well, really don't. Honestly, it's for, worst. for me, it's, it's, like a, it's like a zen thing for me. I put in headphones. Also, my taste in music is uh, like... The the more brutal, the better. Right, right. It's right. sort of where my musical taste lies. Like, it, if if most people would describe it as unlistenable, that's like my starting point. Um, <laughs> so I put, I get, it's a chance for me to put on music as loud as I want, and mm-hmm. for a half hour, that's all I need to worry about is putting one foot in front of the other. I'm not worrying about coming up with a drink name about Tom Waits and Hamilton, you know, it's something that it's, it's like a Zen moment for me. And I mean, everyone has their own thing that they'll do. Um, I, I haven't been running so much. Um, but I do a lot of stretching when I get home from Mm -hmm. work, especially it's 20 minutes of, of stretching after doing a shift, standing on your feet forever, you know? And like, the thing is, is bartending, honestly, bartending is not, uh, it's physically demanding, certainly. Yeah. And it's mentally demanding, certainly, because you're smiling the whole time while, you know, you're also constructing a drink and you're talking to people, holding five different conversations at the same time, standing on your feet. Sometimes your feet are super wet because you spilled something. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes you wore the wrong shoes and you're kind of slippery. You know, there's a lot of things that go into it. But also, I never want to be seen as a bartender who complains about how hard it is on your body because, like, you know, my my grandfather ran a jackhammer in the city of Toronto until he was 72 years old. Right. Right. Like he's dealing with a jackhammer and concrete and he helped build most of Toronto. He had no cold press coffee. Like, yeah, he did not have cold brew. He, you know, I don't even know if he drank beer. I think he just drank crown Royal all the time, but you know, so like talking about how hard it is being a bartender for 12 hours a day, is like try running a jackhammer for eight when it's minus 12 outside. 
you know? Uh, so, so I never want to, I never want to try to say that bartending is the worst thing you can do for your body. Cause it's not, but when you combine that physical strain with eight or 10 shots throughout a shift, and then you get to 3am and you're eating fries, like yeah. you got to make sure that there's something to sort of balance that out. And yeah. so I run, I do gym stuff. Uh, I've been doing spin classes lately. Nice. I absolutely hate the music and the mirrors and being yelled at by someone wearing Lululemon pants. But the workout itself I know is good for me. And, and I do feel better after going, uh, if anything, the, my dislike of the techno and the mirrors makes me want to work harder just so that I know that it's coming to an end. Um, but yeah, uh, it's definitely, it's something that I, I find really important and I like, I'm not young anymore. Um, I'm, I'm definitely closer to 40 than I am to 30. Um, which makes me closer to 50 than I am to 25. Oh, so, uh, I, and I keep that in mind too. And, and I would like to continue bartending for as long as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really love it. Yeah. Uh, it gives me opportunities like going to Italy to taste tomorrow or hanging out on a podcast and drinking this new famous grouse smoky black, which is possibly old. It's possibly old. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, I mean, I would guess it's, I mean, what's the rules in scotch? How old does it have to be before you can call it Scotch? Oh, all well, three years. Three but years? I'm just saying at the branding, I don't know if it's the same. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, no, I, 100%. I, I think the opportunities that come from from the, the industry are, are pretty incredible. Um, so, you've, so and you, know, you know, you've done a lot for the community here and as, as well as with Bartender Atlas um, worldwide. Um, where can people find you on the social medias? What's kind of your favorite go-tos? Uh, I'm easiest to, Bartender Atlas is easiest to find on Instagram for sure. Uh, at bartender atlas all one word no capitals or all capitals or some cap random capitals i don't think it matters on instagram do you remember when email addresses were text sensitive oh my god who thought who thought that was that That was wow that was really a thing um yeah bartender atlas is the easiest way to to find me um if it's not me answering it's my wife jess don't worry we both read everything um don't ever at any point think that one of us knows something the other one doesn't. <laughs> right. It's funny to see people trying to be sneaky about anything involving bartenders. Like, I don't know who you think you're talking to. <laughs> um, yeah, that's the easiest way to find me. Mark, I brought you a gift. Oh, okay. Um, I coming to the whiskey podcast, we talked about mezcal a bunch and now I'm giving you a bottle of gin. Uh, <laughs> of so, this is very much on point for this podcast. Yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, keeping with the theme. Uh, so, Spirit of York, yes, first distillery to open in the distillery district in Toronto in, I don't know, however many decades. Former ho- home of Gooderham and Warts distillery. Gooderham of Gooderham and Warts. Yeah. Um, made about, I, I guess it was uh, last winter, they invited about 15 Toronto bartenders yeah, to come and help make gin. Yeah. Uh, so this is the first batch of that. They've done oh, a couple. They've done a couple. So this is the first batch. My signature is on the bottle, even though Whoa. I was just one of the team making it. And when it all comes down to it, the uh, distiller there, Mark, uh, was really the one pulling the strings, making sure it all worked. But um, but yeah, that's uh, a bottle for you. There's only. Let me think about it. I would say there's less than 250 bottles of that oh, that's around. Amazing. So that one's for you, Mark. Thanks for doing this. Also, thank you for thank running you, this podcast, which I'll always, you know informative you're doing things to open up people's brains i know sometimes it's just a brand person who will come on and just talk about whatever their brand is but then other times you got people who come on and tell their entire life story and it's a yeah it's yeah. a really cool podcast to listen to um i've been listening to it for years oh, which is sweet. why you. i kept bugging you to come and bring me on your podcast it's very thirsty of me no no that was great <laughs> I, I appreciate it you, you were you were you were coming to me at the times when i was like i don't even know how to 
wake up in the mornings anymore. Um, and so I'm glad we got to get together and I'm glad I'm releasing podcasts more regularly. This has been a, um, it's been a lot of fun getting back into podcasting. I, uh, I really missed it when I wasn't doing it as much. Uh, mm-hmm. I really love the format, especially coming back. We were talking about this before the podcast, especially being a writer and kind of saying like, okay, let me see if I can, you hilariously enough have a broadcasting background. Yeah. Um, I have, and, and you write and I don't have a broadcasting background and, uh, uh, and only a, a hobby really writing background for, for many years before I started writing professionally. But, um, yeah, it was been, it's a fun format for me. Um, I like that I don't have it as structured and I don't, I know that drives some people's nuts, but other people love it. I think that's, uh, that's great. Yeah. I found just, an audience. It's just awesome. little, just little conversations, yeah. which is all broadcasting should ever sound like anyway. Yeah. I'll just miss Jamie <laughs> on the podcast. The biggest cha- the biggest challenge for us has been uh, getting to, uh, getting uh, together time with Jamie because uh, Jamie's been uh, traveling so much. And... <laughs> the only time I ever see Jamie is when we are at some giant event with 500 other people. Yes. And it's always just like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay. Yeah, have a good night. Okay. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, also that's my voice. That's not me trying to make fun of Jamie's voice. Her voice is amazing, but that's what I sound like by the time I get to those whiskey events and it's three hours in. In. Three hours in, yeah, that's true. That, that's uh, always fun times when the, at those at those events. Mm-hmm. Um, thank you much. For, thank you so much for coming on, Josh. I really appreciate your support and your help and you coming in and bringing all this wonderful stuff and making this cocktail. Which, um, yeah, thank you. This is the first. I swear, I'll give you the real recipe when I nail it down. Awesome, Josh. Thank you so much. Thank Cheers. you so much, Mark. Cheers. Cheers.